Welcome to Saga Thing Cool Nights, where we're putting Loxdala Saga on trial all night long. I'm John. And I'm Andy. I think this is a great new uh, take on the intro, John. Yeah, it'll grow on you like a quality fungus. Yeah, so we're back for the seventh installment of our trip through the story of Laxdala Saga. And after finally meeting Andy, the I'm gonna stop you there. three... How long yeah. are we going to keep this going for? <laughs> I was just going to run through, uh, you know, we met our three central figures. We're ready to move into the most famous part of the story, the second half, you know, that that business. Sure, fair enough. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, no, uh, we finally finished the first part of our story and we're ready to dive into, I guess, what we call the second half. Yeah, there's a there's a surprising amount of action in the first half, but not a whole lot of narrative continuity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm looking forward to spending multiple episodes with the same people for a change. That's going to be fun. <laughs> I'm always here for you, Andy. Every time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What a comfort that is. Uh, and of course, our many, many dogs are here for us as well. Uh, yeah, too many. Yeah, I skimmed through our last episode and I definitely heard the jingle jangle of little puppy tags. Yeah, that was so, mine. Uh, yeah. Until uh, Wolfston and Daphne settle in a bit, uh, that's likely to be part of the background noise for this podcast for a while. It is. Well, consider it part of the... <laughs> <laughs> on on cue. As if on cue. There he is. That's Grimnir. Uh, well, you know, it's it's part of that homey and welcoming atmosphere that we like to imagine is part of the podcast. So sure. maybe they'll yeah. be tussling. Maybe they will yeah. be uh, snoring. Who knows? Homey and welcoming. Now on to the murders. Well, yes. So this episode gets a little violent. Yeah, I think we're actually going to come close to doubling our body count. Uh, but before well, we can start the killings, we have to explain how we got to this point. Mm-hmm. Last time on Saga Thing. And yes, I know you already have it pre-recorded. I don't care. Olaf Peacock still rules the roost in Loxodal, having quashed his brother's jealousy and taken the clear place as head of the family. But dark clouds appear on the horizon when Olaf is visited by the vengeful spirit of the mother of a four-horned bull Olaf had slaughtered. Sort of a strange sentence when you hear it said out loud. I was just thinking the same thing. The spirit woman is the first of several people to predict the death of Olaf's son Kjartan at the hands of his beloved foster brother Botley. While Olaf Peacock and his family are consolidating. <laughs> Jesus. I'm right here While on the Olaf- front lines of the war, Jim. <laughs> it's very loud out here. <laughs> While Olaf Peacock and his family are consolidating their political hold on the Alaxidal region, others are also thriving. A local farmer named Oswif makes good, growing his farm and his family with equal success. Olsreef and his wife are visited by a conga line of storks, bringing five sons and a daughter to fill their nests. Olsreef's daughter, Gudrun, gains a reputation for intelligence and beauty as she grows into woman's estate, although rumors also suggest a stubborn streak and a somewhat flexible sense of personal ethics in the young lady. As a young teen, Gudrun meets with her much older cousin, the far-eyed prognosticator, Guest Olivsen, and she tells him about a quartet of dreams and learns that her fate will be to have... And to lose four husbands. She puts this prophecy to the acid test almost immediately, marrying a nouveau riche local named Thorvald. But it's not long before she turns an acquisitive eye toward Thorvald's best buddy, Thord Ingunnarsson, who's only too happy to return her amorous gaze and ignore his own wife in the process. Guthrun and Thord cut the Gordian knots of their matrimonial bonds by reframing their spouses for cross-dressing a cultural non-starter that allows them to end their marriages. 
they quickly remarry to one another, presumably while wearing culturally approved garments. But while Thorvald is probably secretly relieved to be rid of his spendthrift wife, Thord's wife Alv resents her divorce and her ex calling her Breaches Alv in public. And so, armed with a steel sword and a bitter irony, Alv rides to Thord's new farm while dressed in men's clothing and hacks at him as he sleeps, permanently maiming his right arm. Now Thord and Gudrun, Kjartan and Botli must all prepare themselves for a new set of challenges. And not all of them will survive. Who will live? Who will die? And what's with all the rumors about the new king in Norway? Find out as we forge on into Laxdala Saga, chapters 35 to 40. The fine folks of Laxdala have been keeping busy, uh, mostly by predicting doom for Kjartan and Botley. I think we can retire the foreboding sound effect now, though. We, we don't need it, do we? Yeah, maybe. Or maybe not. Nah, okay. But one of the strange elements in the last episode was that all those predictions of the doom awaiting Kjartan and Botley came in a section of the saga where they themselves don't really appear at all. <laughs> no, no, it's a little odd. They're spotted from afar at one point, but that's really about it. Because the author's busy shifting focus to Gudrun, and at this point, Kjartan and Botley, they're just two of the many young men in the neighborhood. Sure. But really, up to this point in the story, Kjartan and Botley have been kept at arm's length very consistently. We haven't really had any like POV time with them at all. We've had some mm-hmm. insights into the workings of Gudrun and her intelligence, her cleverness, and her nasty streak when something gets in the way of what she wants. But Kjartan and Botley have been just two good-looking boys living the life of young aristocrats on the fjord. Well, that's going to change this time. Sort of. Uh, first, we need to deal with a thing that we mentioned at the end of our last episode, something that we skipped in the last episode, in fact. Mm-hmm. That is... The infestation of Hebridean sorcerers in Laxernal. Let's get to it. Part 22. The family that casts together, lasts together. That was a lot of T sounds. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Yeah, but it it works. It all makes sense in the end, Mm -hmm. I tell ye. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we said in the last episode that we were going to be juggling the sequence of events around a little in this part of the saga. Um, And now it's time to, uh, you know, make good It's not the fault of the saga, really, but like Erbage's saga, this is a complex interweaving of narrative strands. Yeah. Uh, Bertha Philpott's called this a rare example of a three-strand saga, mm-hmm. as opposed to the more usual two-strand formula. Right. A two-strand saga features a connection or conflict between two individuals or families, and then ignores everything that isn't relevant to that narrative. But this saga is building up a narrative with three equally weighty figures. But is it a three-strand saga? I think that's a good I mean, question. I suppose we could call it a one-strand saga if we stick to the original viewpoint of the story, right? The the massive family lines descended from Al the Deep-Minded. It'd be a hell of a tangled strand, though. Or a delicious spaghetti dinner. <laughs> sure. Fit for the lady in the tramp and another slightly less desirable tramp. <laughs> I was actually thinking in the opposite direction. Uh, There's a fair amount of time spent on groups of people whose stories only loosely connect to the main narrative, right? Mm. So calling it a three-strand or a one-strand saga, to me, seems to ignore the real scope of this thing. So call it a spaghetti-strand saga if you want. I don't think I will. Uh, (laughs) I think it makes sense, though. Yeah, sure. Uh, To your point, this next section is about a family that's coming in from outside the region. A Hebridean family. Kotkil and Grima, and their sons, Stigandi and Haltbjorn Slikstonai. 
Yeah, Slickstone Eye is a bit of a mouthful, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we should kill him off as soon as possible. No. Oh, oh wait, no. good news. Don't skip ahead. <laughs> Fine. Don't do that. So the four Hebridians are a huge problem in the neighborhood. They're, they're stealing mm-hmm. from their neighbors. They're treating others badly. They do no useful work. They're, they're just not the sort you want in the neighborhood. Now, normally, this is the sort of problem that you take to your local Gothi. But the Gothi in this area is an unpopular man named Hotstein. Now, Hotstein has an unfortunate reputation for shielding his friends from trouble. And he defines friends pretty much as anyone who benefits him personally. Sure. So these Hebridians are now under his protections as long as he finds it useful to have a family of sorcerers around, which could be quite a while. Right. And their favorite victim at the moment is their neighbor, Ingun, who is an older woman running her own farm. And she's also the mother of Thord and Gunnarsson. Now, Thord's the guy who divorced his wife, Alv, to marry Gudrun Olsvi's daughter in the last episode. Correct. And he's also the one whose ex-wife that attacked him in his bed and maimed him with a sword blow to his right arm. Yes, good old Breaches Alv, as they call her. Mm-hmm. Or someone called her. Or one right. person called her. Yeah, One person. Uh, Thord's also the guy who is Gudrun's second husband, as I said. Right, and there was a prophecy about Gudrun's second husband. A prophecy suggesting that he's uh, he's going to die. Eh, we're all mortal. No, I mean, he's he's going to die soon. Oh, and okay. According to the dream interpretations from last time, he's going to drown. Oh, right. Okay, well, as long as he stays away from ships, he should be fine. So... Ingun comes to visit her son and complains about the Hebridian sorcerer infestation hiding under her chieftain's protection. And Thor may have his flaws, but he's not going to be let this go without he's it. Mostly, he's mostly comprised of flaws, John. <laughs> okay. That's but remember last is. time, Thor knew Alv was the one who attacked him, but he refused to have her pursued or killed because he recognized that what she'd done was a, a return for his injustice against her. Yeah, or because he was embarrassed about being maimed by his ex-wife. Or that. And that. And that, Uh, yeah. But the point is that Thor isn't the sort to ignore an injustice, especially if it involves someone picking on his mom. Who exactly is the sort to ignore an injustice to his own mother? Uh, Nero? (laughs) (laughs) Pulled out of the annals of history. Well done. (laughs) We all know how painful that can be. If you don't know what John's talking about, just uh, Google Nero and, and his mother <laughs> and find out. So Thor immediately puts together a party of ten men and takes a ferry with his mother back to her farm. Oh, don't get on a ferry, Thor. Don't you know what's going on? Come Why? on, man. What could go wrong? Well, he could drown. He's he's going to drown. Don't shh, get on the ferry. Shh. He orders the farmhands there to drive Ingun's livestock overland to his farm and loads all her other property back onto the ferry. And before he goes, he rides to Cockhill's farm nearby and formally charges the entire family with sorcery and demands they show up at the All Thing to defend themselves. Mm-hmm. And then he returns to the ferry and sets off. A firm, decisive action. Way Towards to follow. Towards a man who knows his mind. That's right. He knows his mind. Sure. Uh, now, as it happens, Kotkel and his wife Grima, they're home and they hear the summons. But their sons are away from the farm. And those sons return just after Thord's ferry sets sail. And they're furious when they hear about what happened. Sure. With their help, Kotkel erects a platform for performing a magic ritual. And a blizzard suddenly blows into the bay. 
Right now, out on the ship, Thor and his men see the gale force winds coming over the water and desperately sail for cover behind a headland. Yeah. They're they're using this wind to their advantage, and Thor starts throwing his mother's possessions overboard to lighten the ship. But the blizzard still hits just as they are about to return to safety. Oh, but was that my table? Yes, mother. And did you throw my bed off, too? Yes, mother. Thor, was that my hope chest? Kind of busy here, mom. <clears throat> and scene. <laughs> I, I, I sort of like the idea that this, this old Icelandic woman has a hope chest. <laughs> right. I'm sure she does. Because uh, medieval Icelanders are known for their uh, many, many goods that they had lying around. Sure. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, but they did, you know, they had chests of things that are important yeah, yeah. to them. Um, you know what I was one I was thinking about when I was reading this particular section the idea that uh, this this gale this terrible gale this storm whips up out of nowhere mm-hmm. and of course it's blamed on sorcerers but right. I think anyone who's ever been to Iceland <laughs> knows that it's just the kind of how thing. weather works there right. but right. it's if, convenient if it the, to blame it on someone right if it is the work of sorcerers it's uh, I would say that Iceland still has a a boom a bumper crop of sorcerers working <laughs> yes, overtime. <laughs> they really do. Oh, man. Uh, now, meanwhile, the Hebridians, they're just casting spell after spell, just keeping that storm raging. Mm-hmm. I, now, John, I wonder, uh, on my first day in Iceland this last time, was I the victim of sorcery? <laughs> I mean, and then, had you done anything to annoy Hebridians before you arrived? To the best of my knowledge, I hadn't had any contact with any Irish, Scots, any Celts of any kind. But Andy, so I've known you for a long time, and it's conceivable yeah. that you could annoy someone from quite a distance away. Oh, so you know what? Is it possible there was a Hebridian somewhere on the plane? <laughs> no, but uh, in the airport in uh, where were we? In uh, Newark, we ran into a guy from London, and mm-hmm. he was very drunk, and he claimed that we must be rich if we're going to Iceland, uh, which couldn't <laughs> be farther from the truth. <laughs> but I understand where he's coming from. But we uh, we talked to him, and maybe I said something that uh, that he found offensive, and he called some sorcerers that he knew. He he hired a few Hebridians or Finns or something. I mean, London's close enough, right? Maybe he knows. Maybe he knows a, a Welshman who, who can whip Could up be. the storm. Could be. I, I don't know. I don't know. But uh, the storm is raging back in the story, and as Thor. <laughs> Finally reaches the breakwater, a jutting rock suddenly appears out of the waves in a spot where no rock had been before. See, these are some powerful Hebridians. Well, I mean, there's four of them and they're on a platform. True. True. They've got a platform. So, yeah. So all bets are off. This uh, isn't your feet on the <laughs> ground kind of spellcasting, John. This is a <laughs> this is a big deal. Uh, Thor's ship is speared through the keel by this rock and smashed mm-hmm. to bits by the force of the waves. Everyone on board, including Thor, his mother, a female servant, and nine other warriors, everyone dies in the crashing waves. Body count. Yep. Their bodies wash up on shore and are buried all together in a large mound, giving the place its name, Mound Point. That's a very clever name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that name doesn't indicate there's bodies in there necessarily, Right, does just it? a lump. There's a lump. Anyway, so Gudrun's prophetic dreams are now two for two on predicting the ends of her marriages. Yeah, it's not a great advertisement for husband number three. Oh, too soon, John. Let the woman grieve before she gets married to another guy that's going to die. But the saga isn't that interested in giving Gudrun time for reflection. 
She's very pregnant when Thor dies and soon gives birth to their son. She names him Thor Thorthason. And I know oh. we're trying to get to the revenge part of the story, which is coming right yeah, up. Well, but well, well, let's talk about the revenge. Well, okay, but give me a second here. Despite a rough start in life, the wee baby Thor Thorthason has a bright future. See, mm-hmm. Gudrun's father, Osvif, has some powerful friends and relatives. And it turns out that my thingman, Snorri Gothi, is both a cousin and friend of his. And I haven't heard of Andy, that's Snorri- a friend worth having. For revenge, yes. But uh, <laughs> is this Snorri? You said Snorri Godi? Yeah, yeah. Who? Uh, yeah, that guy. Who is that? Uh, the point Have is. Have we heard of him? The point is that the very well-known I'm Snorri not with him. reaches out to Gudrun and offers to foster the lad. Oh, that's uh, nice. Gudrun agrees, and Snorri treats her son very well, raising him alongside his own children. And while the boy doesn't have much of a role in this saga, he's known from other sources as Thor the Cat. Uh-huh. And he eventually goes on to become the father of the poet Stuff. That's right. Now, hang on, because yeah. at least one saga, uh, Erbigisaga, lists Thor the Cat as one of Snorri's actual biological sons. But in this saga, Thor is a boy born without a father. Oh. And although the text doesn't mention it, that's something that Snorri Gothi, of all people, would feel some sympathy with. That's true. A, a little obscure, but yeah. I mean, Snorri was born... Thorgrim Thorgrimson, after his father Thorgrim the Gothi was killed by Gisli Sursen, right before Snorri was born. So, uh, narratively, it makes sense that if anything could touch that lump of icy coal that passes for Snorri's heart, oh. well, that would do it. Hmm. I'm going to ignore the slur on my prize thingman and agree with the underlying sentiment. Okay. Uh, I also want to point out that this family connection is narratively interesting. Hmm. Snorri Gothi, as you uncharitably point out, is known for his cunning plans and for how dangerous he is as an enemy. Um, can I just suggest that our listeners go back and listen to our episode on Arabic Saga, <laughs> where throughout the whole thing, John himself points out mm-hmm. what a conniving uh, sneak I Snorri just said Gothi he's is. known for this. Uh, well, you said I was uncharitably pointing it out. I mean, I'm just saying that... Uh, that's your bread and butter. Well, uh, <laughs> but of course, of course, you know, Snorri Gothi across many, many sagas is famous because you never really know what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. He's got a great poker face, and uh, I just realized the point you're making. Right? Snorri yeah. Gothi being brought into the narrative at this point yeah. reminds us of the familiar relationship he shares with Gudrun. And I think a lot of Gudrun's behavior makes more sense if we think about it as coming from someone who's a lot like Snorri. Hmm. More to the point, people's reactions to Gudrun make more sense. Because people have a hard time reading her, don't they? Right. Now think about that argument from Armand Jacobson that we talked about last time. That Gudrun uses her dreams and guest interpretations to lay out guidelines for her own life. Right. That feels to me like a Snorri kind of move. It's something to look at. And it's also, if we're right about this, it's also instructive to think about how this sort of machinating is perceived when it has a woman behind it. You said if we're right about this. I don't know if I agree with you, though. Well, I'm just assuming that you're going to eventually fall into the line. I think you assume incorrectly. I don't <laughs> I don't see Gudrun as... Now, is Gudrun a clever plotter? What I'm, what I'm calling into question is your, your idea that Gudrun uses her dreams... 
to lay out her own life for herself, which I know you brought up last episode, and I didn't agree with it then, uh, nor do I agree with it now. <laughs> but uh, revenge, Take it John, up with let's, Armand. Let's get to the revenge, shall we? Uh, what revenge? Guest Aldofsson just goes and gives Hotstein the Gothi a stern talking to, and Hotstein tells the Hebridians they need to move out of the district. And they just pack up their home and their four best horses and move to a new district. Yeah. To land, as it happens, owned by Thorlik Hoskelson, right here in Luxerdal. Thorlik! Now, this guy has been around the action for a long time already in this saga. He is the son of Hoskeldotla Colson, half-brother of Olaf Peacock, and father of Botli Thorlikson. Remember that guy? Um, yeah, Thorlik? a man of consequence, or at least yeah. a relative of men of consequence. Well, exactly. But uh, right now, this is... Another one of not his best moments, <laughs> because the Hebridians show up at his door and they offer him a lovely set of four Icelandic stallions if he'll give them a place to live. He accepts, uh, but unfortunately, no one likes having these Hebridians in the neighborhood, and Thorlik's reputation is going to suffer for it. Mm -hmm. But he's more concerned with these horses. Well, take the horses and run. That's my motto. That's not, not a good motto. Take the horses and ride, actually? Better. Still not accurate, though. He he just takes the horses and sits on his farm and watches them eat. Yep. Uh, and a weird sort of standoff now ensues. Various people in the valley resent the Hebridians, but everyone is waiting for someone else to do something about it. Even Snorri Gothi tells the poor widow Gutherin to hold off. He tells her father and brothers, We should leave this to others. It won't be long before their neighbors will have new complaints against them, and Thorlik will suffer for it which is fine with me. He'll soon find enemies where he once had supporters. And for those who weren't sure what we were talking about a minute ago, that's typical Snorri advice. It mm. seems reasonable, but there's always an angle that benefits Snorri somewhere. Again with the slurs. Slurs or facts, sir. <laughs> Gudrun's father, Oswif, does add a coda to the plan. He tells his sons, Look, if three winters go by and no one has driven them from the district or killed them off, I won't stop you from doing whatever you like. So the clock is ticking. <laughs> I really liked that voice. That was fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, make sure you remember that because I'm sure we'll hear from Osbeth again. Okay. But, uh, John, delayed revenge is a dish best served in about three years. And, and in another section. Part 23. Men are not hanged for stealing horses, but so that horses are not stolen. Of course, it doesn't take three years for the trouble to start. And it comes from an unexpected quarter. At the next year's all thing, Thorlik's booth is visited by a large man named Eldgrim. Eldgrim's a Borderfjörder and a bit of a horse fancier. It's <laughs> a nice way of putting it. A how horse you, fancier. How would you put it? He's a greedy horse thief. Well, hang, hang on. Hang on. Not yet he isn't. Well, soon enough he is. Eldgrim gets right to the point. I want to buy those fine horses. Excuse me? Hmm? What's, <laughs> What's wrong? that? What the hell are you doing? <laughs> uh, I, I thought that was, was the, Eldgrim's voice. this background character from Blazing Saddles you've decided to use for Eldgrim? <laughs> I, was, I was going for a dirty horse thief. Uh-huh. So let me continue with my. Uh -huh. I make the I I make the choices for my characters. Okay? All right. 
if if you want to be Eldgrim, then then you get to choose the voice. But uh-huh. go that's right not ahead. how the cookies no, go right ahead. crumbled today. I can't I can't wait to hear the, the the overall public opinion about this voice. Well, I really hope that Elgrim doesn't talk a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, now, <clears throat> now I have to find my character again. <clears throat> Sorry. I want to buy those fine horses that Cotkel made a present to you last summer. Yeah, it's, it, I gotta say, uh, leaving aside that accent, it's a bit of a slow news year if uh, horse gifts are being talked about all over Iceland. Well, uh, I mean, what else but, is going on? All right, all right. So Thorlick says, I don't know who gave you bad information, but those horses aren't for sale. I'll give you four good horses in exchange and a big payment in silver besides. Some people would say you're getting double the worth of those horses, Thorlick. Well... I'm not much of a horse dealer, I'm afraid. And the horses aren't for sale, even if you offered triple the price. Now, people told me you were an arrogant and headstrong man, and obviously they aren't lying. If it were up to me, you'd get considerably less than I'm offering, and I'd still get the horses. Why, you son of a... I'll go and take a look at the horses this summer, and we'll see who ends up owning them after that. You can try to make good on your threats any time, Eldgrim. So long as you don't intend to outnumber me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> First of all, I, I need Thorlek to get his jaw looked at because clearly <laughs> there's a clinch situation. Uh, uh, maybe he maybe he missed his tetanus shot. I'm not well, he's sure. A, he, he's a he's an angry and bitter man. That, uh, that I, well, I get some that. TMJ. <laughs> but uh, the ending that he he offers there is, uh, you know, uh, I, I'll beat you so long as you don't outnumber me. Don't right. make sure you don't outnumber me. Right. Not really a strong ending for Thorlick. No, it isn't. Uh, Thorlick's not great at this. <laughs> it's schoolyard stuff, really. You know, and Thorlick doesn't sound all that confident, and you need no, to sound there, confident. Yeah, there's something a bit plaintive about the "don't outnumber me" thing. Yeah. Well, as as we might expect, Eldgrim isn't put off by Thorlick's half-hearted threats. A man with a voice like that, you know, sure. he's gonna—he's a man to be taken seriously. He's—he's he's far too rootin' and tootin' for that. He—if—if if anybody's rootin' and tootin' in uh, Iceland at this moment, it's Eldgrim. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> now, one morning later that summer, Hrutz Heljofsson uh, learns from a farmhand that there's a large man out in Hrutz Field rounding up four horses. Right. Now, just a reminder here: uh, Hrutz is Thorlick's uncle. And his mm-hmm. farm borders on Thorlick's. They they don't get along all that well. And Thorlick routinely allows his herds to graze in Hrut's fields. So Hrut Holmes figures out pretty quickly that Thorlick's new stallions are in Hrut's field and that someone is in the process of stealing them. <laughs> Elementary, my dear Watson son. Yes. I've dusted for horses. <laughs> Now, we should also remind everyone that decades have been passing here. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hrut's great nephews, Kjartan and Botli, are adult men, and Hrut himself is 80 years old. Ah, but a young 80. A, a spry he, 80. He wears it well. Yes, he does. He springs to his feet, pulls on a gray fur cloak, and grabs a gold-inlaid halberd, which uh, King Harald had given him decades ago. Mm-hmm. When he gets out to the field, Eldrim has rounded up the stallions and is driving them away. And Hrut sees that Eldrim isn't exactly dressed for a bit of casual field work. He's he's wearing a helmet, a coat of chainmail, and a shield, and he has a sword strapped to his belt, and he's carrying a barbed spear. Well, you never know. I mean, horses can be ornery. 
Well, so can people whose horses you've been stealing. Uh, Maybe that's why he's wearing yeah, all that stuff. Uh, Hrut recognizes Eldgrim and calls out to him, and Eldgrim reluctantly turns back to answer. Good morning, Eldgrim. Where, where are you off to with those horses? I know you and Thorlick are close kin, but I won't try to hide from you that I intend to see to it that he never lays hands on these horses again. Oh, I can't wait for this guy to die. <laughs> Give me my chance, John. I'm only doing what I told him I'd do at the all thing, and as he requested, I didn't come to take them with superior numbers. That That's actually a nice dig at Thorlick. I mean, Ale Scott Grimson would be proud of this, right? Yeah. I mean, here is Eldgrim showing up, ready to fight if need be. Mm-hmm. It's He's not hiding it. He's not coming sure. under a sure. darkness. He's coming to just take the horses. And yep. John, according to Ale's law, mm-hmm. if you can take the horses from a man, <laughs> did the man ever own the horses in the first place? I, I, I'm not sure Ale's law is actually written down anywhere, but uh, fair enough. <laughs> well... Hey, well, you know, I think uh, Eldgrim's a bit witty here. Yeah. Uh, well, there's scarcely much prestige gained in driving off the horses with Thorlick in bed asleep. If you really mean to keep your word, as you say, you should face him before you make off with his horses. Well, you can tell him if you like. As you can see, I came dressed to meet him. Oh, no, I'm, I'm not about to trot over to Kemsness on my slow old legs. But I also don't see myself standing idly by while you rob Thorlick, even if he isn't my favorite kinsman. You, are you pushing up on me? <laughs> you you can't mean that you intend to take these horses from me, Rook. Uh, t- t- tell you what, tell you what. I'll give you other horses instead if you let those loose. Although, I'm not sure they'll be as good as these. Well, that's very nice of you to make the offer, Hood, old boy, but now I've got my hands on these fine horses. No bribe or threat will make me let them go. And then he turns in his saddle to leave. Well, I tried. Your decision will turn out the worst for both of us. And Hrut raises his wrinkly but still strong arm and smashes Eldgrim between the shoulder blades. Mm. And here's the text description of the moment. Eldgrim's mail coat split asunder at the blow, and the halberd cut right through the body. Eldgrim fell from his horse dead, as might be expected. <laughs> well, I mean, that is what I expected, yes. Sure. And uh, that was a lot more dialogue than I was planning on when I chose that voice. Yeah, yeah, I was, uh, I was a bit surprised by your decision there. Yeah, well, you know, I, I apologize, everyone. So uh, word gets around about all of this tomfoolery and uh, about Hrut's heroic deed. And honestly, people are pretty impressed with old Hrut. Yeah, again, he's a very old man here. That's a real issue. Uh, There's a pattern at work in this saga that the people who work for justice, regardless of consequences, tend to be marginal figures. Old men like Hrut, women, slaves, foreigners... Uh, William Penchak makes the point that there's a real lack of hegemonic figures standing up for justice in Lockstala. Right? Mm. There's a kind of hollowness to the culture's sense of honor and reputation, right? at least when it comes to the people who theoretically have the most invested in that system. Uh, but look, you know, Hrut's kind of a quixotic figure all the way through this saga. He's involved in multiple digressions that don't do a ton to advance the plot, like mm. the uh, the Killer Hrup stuff back in chapters 10 to 18, or the feud with his half-brother Hoskuld. 
Mm-hmm. This is just in keeping with his brand of devotion to honorable conduct, even when it interrupts the plot. Right. And it is treated as quixotic. I mean, everyone might recognize he's being noble and patient and all these good things, but it's not like anyone else follows him on that path. It's, it's almost more like everyone's glad someone is living up to the social ideas of conduct because it validates the culture's view of itself. Yeah. You said idea, ideas of conduct, oh, and I, I know you that? wanted to say ideals. I, I did want to say that. Or at least it's it's blended <coughs> enough that it wasn't clear. Right. Well, this is the problem. Really it's hit more, that L. It's more like everyone's glad that someone is living up to the social ideals of conduct since it validates the culture's view of itself. And the residents of Loxerdal, they definitely like the cut of Schrutt's wrinkly old jib. <laughs> Everyone in the neighborhood is now abuzz with news of the octogenarian getting the better of a horse thief. And Hutz earned great honor from this action, mm-hmm. deservedly so. And really, all he's done is make some young whippersnapper get off his lawn. That's actually quite accurate, although he technically buried the whippersnapper in his lawn. I, well, we don't know where he put him. but well, that's fair. <laughs> everyone is now very pro Hutz, except for Thorlick who's more concerned with the optics of having an 80-year-old uncle fight on his behalf while he was still sleeping in bed, Hrofenkel style. Yeah, it doesn't look great. But of course, he could just get up earlier. I mean, let's not get crazy. Uh, Besides, like I just said, with Hrofenkel and many others, there's a long tradition of men who sleep late in the sagas when they're very well off. They're generally not praised for getting their beauty sleep. No, the... The, as you said, the Hravenkel phrase go, the Siam Thornbjarnason, Thorkel Sursen, right? The, this type of guy who like to get a few extra hours of sleep in the morning. They usually miss important stuff or inadvertently overhear things they shouldn't. The, the sagas, I think the sagas like early to bed Vikings. Well, I don't think they care about when they go to sleep. I think they care about when they wake up. Fair point. Yeah. So Hrut is celebrated by everyone else, but the more they sing his praises the more grunchy Thorlick becomes. <laughs> Finally, he pays a call to, that was a little callback to, uh, there you, go. you know, you know, wink. Uh, <laughs> now, finally, Witty. he pays a call. Finally, he pays a call to Kotkel and Grima's farm. Yes. Right. Don't forget, yeah. Kotkel and Grima are, right. are still around. These are the Hebridean sorcerers that everyone's waiting for someone else to deal with. Those guys, yes. Uh, now, Thorlick calls in the favor that he thinks the Hebrideans owe him for giving them a place to stay, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they said they would give him the four horses and he agreed, right. but whatever. And now he's going to ask them to do something to push Hrut's nose in just a little bit. Yeah. Double, double toil and trouble. Hebrideans make the cauldron bubble. Or, or something like that, yes. Now, Kotkel invites him in and smiles and chuckles evilly as he shuts the door. <laughs> I mean, or you, something to that effect. Yeah, you made up that last part, but you might as well be correct. Because that night, the people at Hrut's farm suddenly hear an otherworldly chanting going on outside the farmhouse. Everyone is drawn oh. to the sound and wants to go investigate. But Hrut realizes what's happening and commands them all to stay inside. The chant goes on all night, and eventually everyone falls asleep. Everyone except Hrut's 12-year-old son, Kari. Now, Kauri can't sleep because the chants are targeted at him. Right. Kari is the favorite of Hurt's children. And and yes, he's 12 and his father's in his 80s. Well, you know, do the math there. You know, 
It's a little bit of uh, what's that guy's name? Uh, Tony Randall. Uh huh. Yeah. Little a little Tony Randall action yep. in there. Yep. That's you know? that's exactly when I was thinking of how to cast this saga. When I thought of Hurt, I thought Tony Randall. I don't really think so. <laughs> but they're both virile in their old age. We'll just there you say go. There you that. Go. I believe Tony Randall has a 12-year-old running around still. And he died uh, many years ago. A quick correction here. Tony Randall passed away in the year 2004. His son, Jefferson, was born in 1998, making him far older than 12. But uh, never mind all that. Back to the show. That's a little, that's a little harsh. I hope he's not listening. <laughs> Tony's so, dead. Sorry, young oh, man. Oh, the kid. Not him. Sorry. The kid. Oh, my God. He's 12. You think a 12-year-old's listening to podcasts? That's yes, true. I They've do. probably got some kind of TikTok equivalent of podcasts they listen to now. People just shouting for my, six seconds at a time. My son listens to podcasts nonstop. Uh, there you go. But all like D&D live play kind of podcasts. Nice. That's nice. Probably a much better use of his time listening to us. Yes. Yeah. Why would he want to? He, in fact, I don't think he's ever listened to a single episode of Saga Thing. That's for the best. <laughs> and yet we offer such great entertainment. But he needs to continue to respect you as a father. Fair. Fair. Yeah. He, uh, well, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, getting back to the story, uh, Kauri is the target the Hebridians have chosen to rub Hurt's yes. nose in it a little bit. Yeah, uh, he tries to resist the call, but sometime during the night, he finally gives in and open the, opens the door. Uh, and it's a bit more than rubbing uh, the nose in it, because what happens next is brief, but it might be one of the most haunting lines in the entire saga corpus for me. It reads, he went outside into the magic and was struck dead immediately. Wow. He went outside into the magic. Right? Like it's a, like it's a mist or a fog that yep. sweeps him away. Yep. That's I, haunting. What, I mean, what can I say? Like, I, I, A fistful of degrees can't change that I'm still a huge geek of the Tolkien to Pratchett arc of fantasy lit. And that, that's got the tang of a Pratchett line by way of Jeanette Winterson and Neil Gaiman. And I'm just a sucker for that. A peek into the soul of John, everyone. Yeah, not a view for the faint of heart. Yeah. Part 24. The first thing we do, let's kill all the sorcerers. Sounds like a plan. So <laughs> the household wakes up in the morning and finds Kauri dead outside the door. Hrutz is understandably devastated. He buries his son on the property with a full burial mound. And once that's done, he rides to the farm of Olaf Peacock. Right. And this is Olaf Hoskelson half-brother of Thorlick, and the most prominent man in the district. Now, he's also Hrut's nephew, so all mm-hmm. of this is getting very messy from a family point of view. Yeah, this is pretty tangled. I think your your Spaghetti Strand saga idea is starting to look more and more logical. Yes. Uh, so, Olaf and Thorlick are half-brothers, Hrut is their uncle, and Kauri is, or was, their much younger cousin. It's almost never a good idea to shed family blood in the sagas. Olaf's furious at this news, but even in this moment, he doesn't abandon his role as family peacekeeper. He offers to ride at once to punish the Hebridians, but says that this turned out much worse than Thorlek intended. Yeah, did it, though? Well, I mean, we don't know, do we? <laughs> for, uh-huh. for the moment, there are some sorcerers that need killing. 
And mm-hmm. Olaf and Hrut gather 15 men and race to the Hebridians' farm. Right, but of course, Kotkil knows something like this might be happening. He sees them coming, and the family scatters, trying to run for cover in the hill slopes of the fjord. Bunch of uh, Hebridian roaches, you know? Well, I mean, you know, what would you do when you saw 15 uh, Icelanders running at you on their tiny horses? Yeah, we would scatter. We would scatter. <laughs> fair, fair point, John. Now, the pursuers break up to follow them all, and the hunt is on. Now, Hattiborn Slickstone Eye is the first to be caught. Uh, not so Slickstone Eye now, are we? <laughs> <laughs> Several men tie him up and put a sack over his head, while the others are pursuing the rest of the family. Mm. Now, Kotkel and Grima are finally cornered on a ridgeline between two valleys, Haukadal and Laxadal. The men who catch up with them take no chances. They are both stoned to death immediately on the spot, and then buried in a shallow grave under a huge heap of rocks. Right, to keep them from rising, presumably. That's right. Now, our illustrator, Jacob Faust, uh, has illustrated this moment for us. Um, I'll Mm -hmm. be including both for you. Uh, In one, we see the stoning from the perspective of the the stone E. Uh, So, two large men heaping stones upon them. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in the other one, a really nice uh, picture, we see Kotkel and Grima being led to the spot where they will be stoned. Um, Both really nice drawings, so please uh, Mm -hmm. check those out and go check out his other work at uh, Scarpathen underscore Illustrator uh, on Instagram. It's good stuff there. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, No, those are great pictures. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, then you want to make sure you, you want to make sure you pile those stones high after you stone uh, uh, sorcerers to death, because you don't want to get liches. You you want to pile those stones really high because if you don't, then you're going to have undead sorcerers wandering around. Right. I mean, do you want liches? Because that's how you get liches. Exactly. Exactly. Always pile those rocks up, people. So, three of the family have been caught, but Stigandi, the second son, manages to slip between his pursuers and makes it through a pass into Halkadal, and there they lose sight of him. So three out of four is pretty good. Three out of four sorcerers. I mean, Stigani's escape means that Hapbjorn Slickstonai is going to pay for both brothers. Uh, Hrut and his his sons take Hapbjorn to a boat and out to sea, where they remove the sack from his head to tie a stone around his neck. But before they shove him out of the boat, Hapbjorn gets a final word in. Uh, Mm. Andy, do you want to take this one? Okay. It was an unlucky day for us when my... Oh, wait, they're Hebridean. They're Hebridean, yes. Yes. I know how much you enjoy doing the accent. It was an unlucky day for us when my family came to Thorlek here at Kamsness. I lay this curse that Thorlek will know no enjoyment here for the rest of his days. And that anyone... (laughs) And that anyone, it's getting thicker as we go. Yeah. And that anyone who takes his place will know ill fortune. <laughs> and the narrator ominously adds, it, oh, it's a regular events yeah, are thought. <laughs> <laughs> events are thought to show how effective this curse was. Right. <laughs> that's such uh, a great line. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a. That's impressive. That that accent went on a tour of the British Isles. Uh, it really the- did. <laughs> it really uh, did. Now, honest, obviously, once once he finishes uh, spitting out his curse, they toss him in the water, uh, and the rock drags him down. So now it's three out of four. 
Right, yes. Uh, and, and that's better than nothing, to be fair, but it's not nearly enough to satisfy Hrut. He continues to push Olaf, insisting that Thorlek needs to be punished directly and asking for men to bring on a raid to Thorlek's farm at Kamsnes. It's taken 80 years, but the troublemakers in the family have finally pushed Hrut too far. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately for him, Olaf is still the dominant force in the family, and he's still committed to the family peacemaking. He sympathizes with Hrut's situation, but he refuses outright to support or even allow Hrut to attack Thorlik. Hrut's angry, but he's also 80, and there's a limit to how much he can do physically without Olaf's help, so he has to be content with killing the Hebridians. Now, but sometime later, Olaf summons Thorlek to him and asks him bluntly to sell his farm and simply move overseas. Mm-hmm. Our kinsman Hrut cares little for your company, and I'd rather not take the chance of having the two of you so near each other much longer. And remember that Hrut is still a powerful and popular man, Thorlek, and his sons are bold warriors and notorious hotheads. For the sake of our family, I want to avoid a fight between your family and his. Right, and Thorlik blusters a bit, but he agrees, because it's clear Olaf isn't really asking. He's telling him to leave. Yeah. Uh, so Thorlik packs up and moves to Norway, and we get this sort of very brief coda to his story. Uh, he spends some time in Norway, but the political unrest there means that his friends and relations are either dead or have been driven out of the country. So he moves again to Denmark, and then again to southern Sweden. He's unable to ever settle down anywhere, really. Uh, the saga says, Thorlek wasn't the sort to grow old gracefully, which is pretty well in keeping with what we've seen of him. He essentially accepts self-imposed exile from Iceland to pay for the damage he's done. Yeah. And, John, that is it for Thorlek. He is now out of the saga. Yeah, that's exactly what this is. Olaf is offering him a chance to choose to leave rather than to risk being legally exiled. Yeah. Right. And that would be a very likely scenario. Uh, using magic against an enemy or paying someone else to do it is a serious crime, and it's laid out in the law codes that you cannot do that and escape yeah. punishment. It's definitely frowned upon. So you can see why that would be considered a no-no. <laughs> so that's it. Thorlek is done, huh? Yeah, he's out of the saga. Well, later days, Thorlek. Of course, we're not quite done with this chapter yet. Uh, remember, there were four Hebridean sorcerers. Hrut and his men only caught three of them. Mm, yes, Stigandi is still out there somewhere. Now, Olaf keeps an eye out, but it's a while before anyone figures out where Stigandi has holed up. It turns out that a wealthy farmer in Hundedal, named Thorth, has been having some trouble with his livestock and he keeps losing sheep while they're out to pasture, and Grettir hasn't been born yet. Right. <laughs> well, wait a or minute. Or has yes, he? He has. Yes. He has. Oh, he is absolutely he has at this point, yeah. Oh, we're, is he uh, out there we're getting into the trouble? 990s now, I think. Oh, yeah, you're right. Okay. Uh, now, this the missing sheep wouldn't be a big deal in and of itself, but the shepherd woman he's put in watch over the sheep has been seen with a lot of new stuff. New clothes, jewelry, combs, all the good stuff. And meanwhile, there's a sheep or two missing every few days. Okay. Thorth doesn't need to be Inspector Clouseau to work out what's going on here. Which is good, because he's not. Well, actually, scratch that. Uh, Clouseau was sort of famously inept, right? So, 
Oh, yeah. So maybe he is like Clouseau then. Well, I mean, Thorth's a simple man, and he's got a simple solution to the problem. He questions the shepherd and eventually forces her to admit that, in fact, she has struck up a friendship with a large and handsome man who lives in the wilderness somewhere near the farm. Does this uh, large and handsome man have a Hebridean accent by any chance? I don't know what a Hebridean accent sounds like, to be fair. <laughs> it's all guesswork you know, from here. Generous. It's all guesswork from here in Oxford, Mississippi, laddie. Oh, no. <laughs> no. Poor Ewan McGregor is going to be so insulted when he hears this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think Ewan McGregor is going to recognize that he ought to be insulted by that. <laughs> it was like, is that supposed to be Scottish in some way? I'm not sure. Is there a drunken Welshman trying to do an impression of me somewhere? <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but uh, he, the guy who is giving these gifts, he, he does have a Hebridean accent. And uh, speaking of mentioning it, uh, Thorv immediately reports his shepherd's new bow to Olaf. And Olaf may be set against squabbles within the family, but he's still interested in making a point about Hebridean sorcerers attacking his kin. Right, and that's a key point. The saga's cultural prejudice against Hebridians means that killing them is kind of an easy, straightforward way of demonstrating Olaf's resolve without really sacrificing his status as a peacemaker. Fair, the Hebridians yeah, are outsiders, right? Their threat to the stability of the region is easily seen as requiring violent solution. Yeah, it's it's xenophobia at work. I mean, it'd be interesting to map out the levels of suspicion the sagas show toward various ethnic and national groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, especially if you start overlaying the 10th century and the 13th century realities right, that yeah. you would find in the... We we do still have a sorcerer lurking around Thor's farm to deal with, but I think, right, I think right. that you're onto something there. Um, yeah. And you would find something like uh, we, they suspect the Irish and the Scots right. and the Finns. Irish, well, Scots, we, and Finns. And why Swedes. Don't we return to that, why don't we return to that at the end of this episode? Okay, yeah, fair enough. Uh, so, for now, carry on. I thought I was trying to move you on, but then you had to move me on, and so now we're back. <laughs> That's what we do. Now, now we're back where we need to be. So Olaf and his men, they ride to Thorth's farm where they run into a bit of a problem. See, the shepherd was reluctant to tell Thorth about her new friend in the first place, and when a crew of heavily armed men shows up and surrounds her, well, she clams up completely. Can't blame her. Thor's solution to this was to threaten her, but Olaf shows why he's respected as a chieftain. You see, he offers to buy her freedom if she will help them catch Stigandi. And to that, she immediately agrees. Right. And the author does a nice bit of shorthanding here. The story now jumps immediately to the shepherd out in the field back at work, just yada yada is the whole plan, and gets to the execution of the plan. And the execution of Stigandi while we're at it. <laughs> so it's it's not long before Stigandi comes to see this shepherd, this lovely lady. And uh, this is part of his routine. They chat for a bit, and she offers to search his hair for lice, which, yes, having uh, had lice in my house uh, at some point in my <laughs> children's lives, uh, it's gross. But it's also a tempting offer for a guy who's been on the run for a while and surely must have lice. Right, right. and apparently can't get his hands on a comb. I mean, people had combs for this sort of thing. Well, a lice comb is different from a regular comb. 
Yeah, zone. but they had both. <laughs> <laughs> they, they did. They did. Now, this guy is on the run from basically everyone. His family's mm-hmm. been killed by a mob, and he's hiding behind a sheep pasture, trading gifts to this woman for, for food. Mm-hmm. Now, if a lovely young shepherd wants to help him deal with a lice infestation, Stigandi's not the man to say no to the first bit of kindness the universe has shown him in a while. Yeah, we should remember that this guy helped magic a tween to death not that long ago. I don't know that the universe owes him a lot. It owes him a little hair care, though, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? So, St- Stigandi's tired, maybe from all the scratching, and maybe from Ugh. trying to fall asleep Ugh. in a cave in the middle of nowhere. Um, so, he lays his head down in the shepherd's lap, and he falls asleep. So, she picks nits for a few minutes, and then gently slides out from under him to go alert Olaf and his men that it's Hebridean open season. Right, and... Olaf and company have learned their lesson from Stigandi's brother Slickstonai. They're not going to let Stigandi see them, or indeed see anything that he can lay a curse on. They sneak up to him and drop a bag over his head, lice and all. Remember, it's a truism of the sagas that a magician needs to lay eyes on a victim to curse them. Which, right? why did they take the bag off of Slickstonai's head? Right. That's the stupidest thing you could possibly yeah. do. I agree. I really want to talk about how that works. Well... You said we're going to talk about this at the end, so let's yeah. do that. We're in medius race here, so uh, you might be. Stigandi <laughs> was in medius somnus, and That's now true. he's in what? In medius saculum, <laughs> in the middle of the sack. Yeah. Oh, you're such a nerd doing your Latin Sue composition me. right in the middle of the podcast. <laughs> uh, so the problem with killing sorcerers is that you don't get a lot of rehearsal, and someone screwed up on choosing a bag because there's a hole in it. And Stigandi can see out of it. Oh, 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 oh it's, it's not great. You no. Gotta, you got to check your bags if you're hunting sorcerers. <laughs> Come on, man. But uh, at least they all have the sense to stay out of his view. The only thing he can see is a grassy slope in the land. And suddenly, a whirling storm strikes the slope, destroying the ground so that nothing grows there afterwards. And people call it the fire slope. And after that, no one wants to risk bringing this guy out onto a ship, so they just uh, stone him to death right there. Right, which sounds like, you know, just kind of a, a throwaway line, but when you think about the fact that that just basically means somebody picks up a rock and, like, caves this guy's head in, yes. it's pretty brutal. Yeah. Uh, and, but by the way, Olaf keeps done. his... Yeah, yeah. Uh, Olaf does keep his word. He buys the shepherd's freedom, and she actually ends up traveling with him back to Hjartherholt. Olaf showed some real EQ with her. Mm -hmm. Threats are enough to get her to confess, but it takes offering something she wants to recruit her active help. Really showing off those people skills, Olaf, well done. Yeah, yeah. And this is, I mean, obviously from our perspective, we can look at this and see a powerful man using a woman's unfree status as a kind of blackmail to uh, force her to betray her lover. But within the text, this is both impressive and compassionate. Mm-hmm. Right, He's got the power and authority to force a cooperation, but he chooses a gentler path. And of course, but, the fact that Stigandi is apparently crawling with lice is maybe also a reason she's willing to live without him. But that's not such a rare thing for the period, though. Still unpleasant, though. Uh, yeah. But yeah, lice are just one of those things. Uh, we've had a couple of references to lice in the last few sagas. Remember the, uh, the Technicolor Nightmare Code of Audi Laus? Uh, Aldi Laos. In False Brother Saga, yeah. 
Yep. Infested with well-fed lice, if I remember. Uh, <laughs> thanks for bringing that disgusting image up again. <laughs> so are we, uh, are we done with our parasite-riddled sorcerers? They're all dead. Ah, but death is no impediment to having a good time if you're an evil magician in the sagas. Oh, dear. The rest of the family's been laid to rest properly, but Hopbjorn Slickstone Eye's body washes up on shore a while later at Gnarness, further along the coast there. And even though he's tossed into a shallow grave, he starts haunting the place immediately. And we get a sort of one-paragraph ghost story about his attempt at becoming a revenant. Uh, John, do we, uh, we got time for that? I think we got time for that. I mean, yeah, I know this story, and it's literally one paragraph. I think we can squeeze it in. If there's one thing I know about us, John, though, it's we can take one paragraph and turn it into a two-hour <laughs> two hour saga. Let's, let's try to keep the focus narrow, right? The the one-inch picture window. I got you. So <laughs> the farm nearest the grave is called Thukfaskolk, and it's owned by Thorkel the Bald, who keeps cows and has a reputation as a brave and strong man. Mm. One night, he and a farmhand go out onto the land, and they look for a missing cow. So... They split up, and it's not long before Thorkettle sees a cow on the rise ahead of him. But when he gets closer, he sees that it's actually Slickstone Eye. Right, holding up a pair of cow horns and mooing. Worst siren song ever. But <laughs> the undead monster is caught off guard by Thorkettle, who, to be fair, isn't particularly scared. He no. just grabs him and wrestles him into submission. Slickstone Eye is forced to back off as a result, and he sinks into the ground and disappears. And that's that. Haunting over. It's a bit of a cow flop, really. You sure you want to go with that one? Yep. Didn't we just see someone wrestling a cow exactly like this? And the cow uh, slips into the ground? Didn't Harryolf yep. do this? Yep. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago. Yeah. Yeah, maybe episode two or three, something like that. Uh, yeah, wasn't that long back. Tip uh, of the spear gets people broken like to off. wrestle their yeah, they like to wrestle their cows. Yeah, cow wrestling and ground sinking, good times. And in that one, the haunting ended after that wrestling match too. It's exactly yeah. the same. Hmm. Yeah. All, well, all then. you gotta do is wrestle a cow to the ground. Solves all your problems. <laughs> well, then I know the, where I'm going. The lesson tonight. for all those of you who are spending a lot of money on psychiatry right now. Uh, <laughs> Head out Take to care your, your local wellness, farm. But also, consider wrestling a cow. Apparently, That's it solves right. all your problems. That's right. <laughs> Part 25. Kjartan, Kjartan, over hey, the boat. Hey, 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 John. It, Dude, yes. It, what? it occurs I'm, to I'm me. Do, I'm in the middle of. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yes. This is unorthodox. But it occurs to me that we just told a story that had a beginning, a middle, and an end. The that story is how of stories the Hebridean sorcerers. Work, Andy. Yes, that's right. And yet, sometimes our episodes don't. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're we're uh, you know I know we we prepped Kjartan and Boltley going overseas and mm -hmm. all, all that stuff. Right. Um, but to me, it might make sense if we if we cap the episode and start capping episodes at a nat more natural ending point. <laughs> Well, I mean, as and, long as you're willing to just go ahead and like record the next episode uh, after this about uh, the the trip to Norway. Well, yeah, I mean that's exactly right. Okay, and, I see, I see. And and what if John? What if we were able to? What if we got episodes out on time? <laughs> yeah, put episodes out faster if we did less within each individual episode. By God, it's crazy, but it just might work. 
I mean, how many times have we talked about this very thing? But what I see is an opportunity here. <laughs> We've already you know, prepped the Norway stuff. But By the way, folks, in case you're wondering, this is why um, college has class periods that have a distinct end point. Because it <laughs> yes. forces us to stop talking about these things. Oh, my goodness. My poor history of the English language students this semester... Uh, nope. I just I just start going like I, we were talking about before the we started recording. I got in. I started in on Svein Forkbeard and Canute mm. today, and I really wanted to keep going, but there was the clock. <laughs> it was it was at the end time, yeah. so Canute didn't get his uh, didn't get his due. I understand. Tragedy. I spent so long this morning. I spent so long teaching um, uh, Beowulf's fight with Grendel's mother that I ended up having to blast past the entire war with Sweden and had about five minutes left for the Battle of the Dragon. Oh, no. And and so Beowulf just ends. Yeah, Beowulf, yeah, and Beowulf gets old and dies. And nobody yeah, cares. you know, maybe They're he's all not a great king. Maybe he's a great warrior. Maybe not a great king. Maybe not. I don't know. I don't know. It's up to you to decide. Lofiernos, people. Work it out for yourselves. That's right. Oh, uh, well, time's up. See you later. Um, yeah, so I, I, here's my proposal. Okay. I suggest that we take what we have prepared for the journey to Norway and we Mm. fold it into the next episode, which will have, follow me here, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I I hear the words you're saying. Yes. They don't make a lot of sense to me, but I'm willing (laughs) to trust you. You trust me as a literature professor that stories that have beginnings, (laughs) middles, and ends... That's the, you know, that's the bread and butter of storytelling. I mean, it's a little old-fashioned as a way of storytelling, but I accept it. Well, we could still do things out of order if you want. So we could do the end, the beginning, and then the middle if you'd like. Great. Have dessert first. Why not? All right. Uh, So we're going to talk about conversion first next time, uh, and then we'll get Carton on a boat, and then we'll, you know. (laughs) All right. Well, then shall we just uh, fast forward to our summons? Yes, yes. And I know you know you and I already talked about who we're summonsing, so why yeah. don't you announce to the people who we're summonsing? The it people. Fits. Oh my god. <clears throat> Summons to the court. The Hebridean sorcerers. There you go. Now obviously it makes sense, but uh why the Hebridean sorcerers? Are we just summoning anyone willy nilly now? You keep your willy out of this. There is a point. <laughs> you find Kaltkel and Grima that compelling as characters? Absolutely not. Oh, okay. I find what they represent in the story to be extremely interesting, though. All right. So here's what I've learned about your summonsing <laughs> shtick that you've inserted into our episodes to make them longer. Um, you usually <laughs> don't really care about the character. You care Correct. more about what they represent, which is yes. very English professor of you. Well, I, mean, I don't blame you. Know, you this but, is what I do for a living. But to claim a summons of an individual is kind of silly, but okay. Let's I don't know go. if you know how the legal system works, Andy, but uh, it rarely has anything to do with the actual sort of purpose at hand. Sure, sure. So uh, why don't you roll their corpses on in here and uh, we'll see what we've got. All right. Uh, well, we'll assume they're not dead for our purposes. So, Okay. This saga takes a pretty standard attitude toward Hebridians. Uh, it's, yes, yes. It's similar to the way the sagas usually position themselves regarding the magic of foreign peoples. Right? It's a it's a powerful tool, but often used for nefarious ends. Yeah, nefarious. Yes, a word that doesn't get used often enough. I'm doing my best, but you're right. 
I do want to start with the sheer number of ways that this author demonizes Kotkal and his family. They're foreign, they're mystical, but they're also engaging in cronyism and corruption. They're bribing mm-hmm. chieftains, they're stealing from their neighbors, they're using the power of nature to sink a ship, they're blighting the land and cursing the people and wrecking everything they can. Slickstone Eye even comes back from the dead to take one last shot at making people miserable by haunting a cow. <laughs> there are one household motif index for evil magic in the sagas. I mean, we could get pretty broad about this if we want. Uh, this mistrust and fascination combination with a reputation for mystical abilities, right? Mm-hmm. It's an attitude that the saga authors seem to take toward a number of groups. Groups who were perceived as external to the Scandinavian world and the Norwegian diaspora. Right, and I think, and that's key, I think. I think it has a lot to do with the lack of an imagined common past. Yes. Right? Icelanders built their self-image as a people on the idea of the flight from Norway in the 9th century. Mm-hmm. And other groups, like the Danes and the Swedish peoples, were close enough politically or linguistically to fit within this very broad concept of us and them that marked most saga writers' mental map of the world. The Celtic peoples, the Finns, the Skraelings of the Americas, and so on, they, they were removed from this linguistic and cultural context of Icelanders, right? in the collective imagination at least. Uh, yeah. the, the Hebrides, in case anyone's forgotten, the Hebrides, uh, and in case anybody didn't catch what your accent was doing earlier, the Hebrides <laughs> are a group of islands off the northwest coast of Scotland. They're, they're part of the world the Vikings inhabit, but they aren't accepted as owning a Scandinavian address. Yeah, you bring up the Finns, and that that's a good parallel here. Because the, the Saomi of Finland, uh, they were thought of as a sort of inherently semi-mystical people. Mm. They were sought and shunned simultaneously for their magical connections to the world. They were thought of as a relatively primitive people, but despite that, or perhaps because of that... Their magics and connections to the natural and spiritual world were enhanced. Right. And this is so often the case, right? You see something similar happening in Renaissance English depictions of the Welsh, right? We mentioned yeah. the Welsh before, right? Owen Glyndwr's depiction in Shakespeare's Henry IV. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that matter, look at white colonial depictions of indigenous peoples all over the Western Hemisphere or in Australia or in Africa. Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you think of your average Western, American Western romance, right? Mm -hmm. What role do the Native Americans play? They are either the enemy, the bad guy, Mm -hmm. right, in some way, because they are different, or they are the mystic wise men who can show the white man the the path that he needs to be on. Right. The shamanic figure who has sort of healing powers for both the sort of physical and mental ailments of the hero. Right, which grows out of the fact that they are both, quote-unquote, primitive and connected to nature in ways that the more, quote-unquote, civilized <laughs> white man quote is not. Well, you have mm-hmm. to because we're talking about generalizations right. Right. And, and kind of archetypes here. Sure. But, uh, so we're, we're, we're kind of moving ourselves toward a dissertation-length digression, but uh, 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 let's jump, jump back into the sagas, right? All right. Well, back to the Sami, you were saying? Well, in the sagas, people of Salmi blood were often seen as having magical abilities and associated with something called spirit walking, uh, visions, and other paranormal abilities. Uh, mm-hmm. John, remember the saga of Harold Fairhair uh, tells of how a Salmi woman named Snaufrith seduces and then marries King Harold, and he becomes so enchanted by her that he neglects his own people. 
And when she dies, he learns that she was, in fact, a sorceress when her corpse erupts into a pile of snakes and frogs. I'm sorry. You said she bursts in an explosion of snakes and frogs. I don't know if I said explosion, but snakes and frogs, yes. Uh, So not the good kind of sorceress. I mean, are you a herpetologist? (laughs) If so, then it's wonderful. If not, then perhaps not. It's like a pinata. Uh, That's right. And like Kotkel and his family, Snyfrith uh, uses her power to gain the friendship of powerful men and to maintain influence over them. Right. And the Sami are used for other magical tasks as well. Uh, In Vatnsdala Saga, a Sami woman prophesizes that Ingemann the Old will have to emigrate from Norway to Iceland. And he has absolutely no interest in going. Uh, he tries to escape his fate of moving to Iceland, which Ingemann calls that wilderness. And so he hires three other Finns to send forth their spirits to scout out Iceland for him. Yes, and he still ends up having to move there, though. Yeah, but but it's partly because he believes the prophecies of Sami sorcery. Uh, mm-hmm. But let's get back to the Hebrideans. Oh, well, the Hebrideans. <laughs> I thought we'd forgotten about them. Well, I did say I was interested in what they represent. Right. Hebridean magic is wild magic. It's magic of the natural world. It's primarily accessible to those whom the sagas treat as closer to the wild or uncivilized, for which read un-Scandinavian, world. It's treated almost as a given in this story that a family of Hebrideans would bring magical trouble with them. And you can find various scholars who've looked into the link between the Hebrides and sorcery. Uh, Stephen Mitchell's Learning Magic in the Sagas. It's a good place to start on this subject if anyone's interested. Yeah. The thing is, the, these peoples, they weren't as they weren't as removed from Icelandic society as the saga writers of the 13th and 14th century imagined that they were. Right. A number of figures in the sagas have Salmi heritage, for example, or at least Salmi name elements. Uh, Finboy the Mighty is the most obvious example, I think. Right. Well, as for the Hebrideans and Celts, we don't really have to look farther than Njal saga, right? The saga of a man named Neil. Yes. Uh, uh, and Njal's son-in-law, Kari Salmundersen, is actually a Hebridean. He is. Uh, and later stalks his son's killers in the middle of the Battle of Clontarf in Ireland. Right. There's a lot of links here. We could also revisit Erbija saga with the somewhat mysterious Hebridean woman, Thorgunna, and her haunted bedclothes. Uh, and by the way, there is actually a law specifically forbidding haunted bedclothes in Norwegian law. I don't know if you know about that. Uh, no, I don't know about that. It's what a is real this? thing. Uh, which is probably what the reference in the saga is too, is the idea that if Ah. someone has haunted bedclothes to sign that they're a sorcerer. We also shouldn't forget the main clan we're concerned with in Laxdala saga is part Hebridean and part Irish. True, but the connections between the Hebrides and the Scandinavian world were so deep that these lines, I mean, of course they get fuzzy in a hurry. Well, that's exactly where I was going with this. For starters, Al the Deep-Minded moved to the Hebrides as a young woman. Remember back Indeed from episode one? She yeah. married Olaf the White, who was a Hebridean princeling, but who was also Hiberno-Scandinavian in his family lines. Yeah, Olaf was the great-grandson or the great-great-grandson of Ragnar Lothbrok and Auslog Sigurdsdalter. So yes, pretty good pedigree if you're not too worried about the line between myth and history. Uh-huh. But Thorsten the Red, uh, Alv's son, is therefore part Hebridean. And then a couple of generations later, of course, we have Hoskel Dalakolsen and Melkorka, the Irish princess, who produce Olaf Peacock. So, 
Kjartan is one quarter Irish and a little bit Hebridean, but very little sorcerer. Right. Well, and he's got an Irish name, right? He's named for his Irish great grandfather. And I will stop you there. We can take as read that Celtic blood is in the veins of a lot of saga figures. Mm -hmm. I think the latest research puts it at about half the earliest generations of Icelanders had genetic links to Ireland and Scotland. Right. And that's mostly because of all the Celtic women who feed into these families anonymously. Yes. Melkorka is an exception. Right? We learned about her and her story because of the prominence of her family. But we've talked in other episodes, I think especially in the saga briefs on the conversion of Iceland, about the prevalence of Irish and Celtic women in early Iceland. Virginia Woolf famously said that for most of history, anonymous was a woman. And we can take that quote or leave it. But without question, the anonymous Celts of Iceland were mostly women. Yeah, and the idea that children learn from their mothers and foster mothers isn't up for debate. Mm -hmm. We even get stories in the sagas about children learning runecraft or witchcraft from their female guardians. And there's another story there about how accusations of witchcraft were used against women over the centuries. And we could go right back to Erbiki Saga and right. many other stories that span beyond Iceland in the Middle Ages. Yeah, unfortunately, that. it's not as if this idea dried up and blew away at the end of the Middle Ages. In, in fact... Just as in other parts of Europe and America, the Scandinavian persecution of witches was particularly intense during the 16th and 17th centuries. Typical Renaissance behavior. Yeah. Uh, I looked this one up, and it's a lot. Uh, in Norway alone, experts now estimate that there were over 1,400 trials for witchcraft between the mid-15th and mid-17th centuries, and something like 350 executions. And the great majority of those people were women, and often women from marginalized groups. I couldn't find any specific stats on the percentages of Celtic or Hebridean women in those groups, though. If anyone knows that info, by the way, I would love to hear it. Hmm. I think uh, I have a question for you, John. Yes. Where are we now in this summons? Uh, I think we're at the end of the summons. Hey. Uh, swung a little wild this time, but I thought it was a worthwhile little side note. I agree. You swung wild this time. <laughs> okay. But but uh, but John, like like Vlad Guerrero, you took that that ball that was far outside and low and you uh -huh. you, you hit it over the fences, didn't uh -huh. you? That's it that's what I do. Sailed. That's me me and Guerrero. That's what we do. Uh, that's right. Me me and Pudge. Uh okay. Time to say farewell to our Herbridian visitors. Uh, we'll be back soon with the story of Kjartan and Butli's adventures in Norway and their fate at the hands of the new ruler there, Olaf Tryggvason. Ooh, ominous. And uh, John, don't forget Gudrun. She's got to be up to something, and I feel like we'll find out what. Right, yes, the opera is getting increasingly soapy around here. Uh, now, while we work on the next episode, please let us know what you're thinking. Are you glad to see the Hebridians pay for their crimes, or are you little worried about the villainization of the Celtic peoples. Mm -hmm. Or both, I guess. <laughs> right. Um, and if you want to reach out to us, uh, you can touch us by email, virtually, of course. We don't want your <laughs> filthy fingers on our actual person. Wow. <laughs> but uh, you, can, you can reach us at e <laughs> Why do I say stuff like that? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know how you've managed to survive as a teacher for this long. I, well, I don't talk like that in front of my students. Right. That's how. That's how. But uh, don't touch anyway. me, you filthy animals. <laughs> Stay back. How dare you approach me? Now, this I am a desk professor. is a demarcation zone. 
I will be right. on this side of it. You stay on that. Yeah. You know, at, at my school, because uh, at least for my lecture classes, I'm always on a stage. That's where I lecture from. Are you seriously? Yeah, always I on a stage. I would kill to have a stage. A stage that oh, I can walk God. up and down and be dramatic. If, I, if, I, if I'm really lucky, I get a, a uh, podium. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, we're, we're well equipped here at the University uh. of Mississippi. Um, anyway, we can be reached by email at sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, or you can join the conversation on Discord, which is where all the cool kids are hanging out these days talking sure. about all sorts of nonsense. Man, just check out the kind of things that they're talking about <laughs> over there. But uh, there's also Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcasts, and on Twitter, where we are Saga Thing Pod. Last but not least, you can check out our WordPress blog, sagathingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can write a letter to us using only palindromes. Consider it a civic deed. Wow. Well said. <laughs> All right. <laughs> the palindromes, you see. All right. On that sad and pathetic note, <laughs> we will be back soon with Kjartan and Botli's excellent adventure in Norway. Until then, be excellent to each other. Party on, dudes. On behalf of me and Rufus... Thanks for listening. (laughs) Bye for now. Or you can write a letter to us using only palindromes. Consider it a civic deed. Hmm. I feel like there's something to that, but I don't know what. (laughs) You see, I don't want to have to explain this to you. (laughs) Civic and deed are both palindromes, Andy. Thus, the joke. Right, which is... (laughs) Right, right. Um, In the moment, I'm not processing it, is what is happening. (laughs) Do you suffer from aebophobia?